Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is Athletics Life Stories with your host, Chris Broadbent. When success goes is when we're then exposed and we're vulnerable, and that's when it became obvious that I was struggling with my mental health. And I essentially bankrupted myself to get back in that position because I was investing in myself. So, you know, I put everything into that moment. My effort was 100% and I controlled the controllables. I did everything I could within my power. Welcome to Athletics Life Stories with myself, Chris Broadbent. Today I'm joined by Jack Green, a world and European medalist in the 4x400m. He's reached European and Commonwealth 400m hurdles finals and is a double Olympian. Yet it is in the area of mental health which is probably best known both in raising awareness of the issue in elite sport and as an advocate for improved well-being. Jack, it's good to see you. Do you know what? That's the first time that mental health has been seen as what I do rather than being a former run-arounder. So that's an interesting <laughs> start. That's the first time. Um, is that right? Is yeah. that right? Is it accurate, would you say, now? Is that where you are now? Yeah, I, th- it's a, I think it's a really strange one when you retire and you, obviously that identity piece because the Olympics is such a massive thing, mm-hmm. even though I haven't run in several years and, and obviously not at a high level, then I'm still known as Jack Green, the Olympian or Jack Green, the runner, when actually that's not much my identity anymore. So it's interesting. So many layers to so many layers to Jack. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> tell me about your tell, let's go back right to the start then. Tell me about your childhood. You're, you're a Kent boy, aren't you? I am, and I'm in Canterbury now. Uh, okay. I live in Canterbury, but I, uh, family are all Maidstone, so middle of Kent, and uh, I moved down to Folkestone by the seaside when I was three with my mum, and it's just always been my mum and I. Um, not particularly privileged background in any shape or form, um, quite the opposite, but I was very fortunate uh, to, to find an ability for running fast, and, and that all started at primary school. I think same way that a lot of people realise that they're good at something, happens at school, I tried out for the uh, district sports team and I beat everyone by a country mile on the grass track. And I remember zigzag, <laughs> I still remember, remember this now, I zigzagged across the, the track and got told, wow, that was really good. And you won by a long, 
big margin. But when you go to the real race, you can't be doing that. <laughs> um, I then made a habit of hitting hurdles and going all over the place in my actual career. So maybe that never changed. But uh, that's how it started, pretty much. And, and from that day onwards, my whole life was about becoming an athlete and an Olympic athlete. Really, from school sports day, that was it. Just a, that was the pathway, yeah. I was writing stories from that day onwards about beating Maurice Green in the 100 metres. Uh, he was my, my hero from that day. Uh, my family had always been athletics fans. Um, you know, we're, we're not a hugely sporty family. I'm the only one that's played, you know, competed at a professional level, but there's always been an interest in sport. My granddad in particular loved all sport, but loved watching athletics in the summer. So yeah, very much supported me on that journey. Um, but yeah, from the age of seven, it was always the plan. Uh, which is quite strange for a seven-year-old. <laughs> yeah, that is focus. Yeah, and did it all come? Did it all come natural to you? You, you obviously won the school sports day, but you, you, did it all come natural when you set, stepped up to young athletes leagues and county level and the rest? Yeah, I was solid. I would. I was eight hundred meters in high jump. I got my first county vest in high jump, not in running, um, and cross country as well. And I was only doing those because I couldn't be a hundred meter runner. I was fast, but not the fastest, um, once you got up the levels, of course. And I would win, like, silver at counties, but nothing particularly special. I'm six foot four, and I've always been tall, and I was very fortunate to have amazing role models along the way. So my school PE teacher was Trevor Rodwell, who won something like six English schools, coach Steve Hurd, if you remember Steve Hurd. Mm-hmm. So I went to that school solely because he was there. And he was almost a bit of a mentor and, and still a friend now. And then when I went to, um, I started at Astrid Athletics Club, but I went over to Canterbury to the track here and met June Plews, who'd coached multiple British champions and things and various events. And yeah, she was the one that said to me, no, you've got some speed in your legs and you're tall. And she was a hurdles coach. And, and that's where I started with hurdles. Mm, okay okay and then you did go on to win the english schools and the three a's that that, that's that type of thing you really started to make some strides in the literally in the uh the hurdles yeah and that was all from doing a four by four for my club realizing i could because you know as i said i was i was good county standard but i wasn't going to go professional at that point in anything and then i did a four by four and it put the time the split i ran i ran that in the in the kind of open race it would have been top five in the country as an under 15 and thought oh maybe I should be doing this one being tall and being fortunate to meet June as a hurdles coach in my first race uh, I went to number one in the UK as an under 17 bottom year in the French hurdles and yeah my journey with that kind of started great okay and then and then you, you went on to the European juniors and the world juniors in 2009-2010 what, what are your memories of those of those events uh, Europeans, it was 40 plus degrees in Serbia, and I remember I was just full of fear. Um, I've always been quite anxious um, as a as a young person, and, and always been a perfectionist, and the pressure was quite a bit. I ended up being injured in the heats after hitting a hurdle and uh, tore an ab, so I couldn't compete in the semi final, which was a shame. But I wasn't going to go, go and do anything fantastic. But obviously, getting a GB vest from a uh, the East Kent where not much happens and single parent family that was a huge achievement something I'm very proud of um, and then the World Juniors yeah that was a big step for me because at that point I was good but not good enough to go pro or anything um, and coming from a single parent family there were some decisions to be made about my future and, and how that worked and I'd signed a letter of intent to go to Nebraska because I had something like 40 
scholarship offers to go out to America and I couldn't afford to continue to just be an athlete in the UK. I didn't have that backing. So I decided to go to America. But then I won a bronze medal in the relay at the World Juniors. I ran the fastest split by a junior that year in the whole world. And I came fifth in the hurdles. And I ran a time 50.4, which was starting to knock on the door of, oh, this kid's got some talent. At this point, I was only training twice a week um, in Canterbury. So I was very fortunate at that point. I'll say fortunate a lot, by the way, because I don't believe in luck. Um, I believe in, it's, I don't like the word lucky. Um, it takes away any kind of accountability for yourself mm. of all the amazing work that you've done yourself. I like being fortunate. You know, things can fall into place, but you've got to be in the right position. So mm. just a little uh, debrief on that. But yeah. basically how, how it happened, I came third at World Juniors and Relay, fourth in the hurdles. I got a phone call from Malcolm Arnold, obviously coach Jason Gardner, Colin Jackson, John Akibua, um, was coaching Di Green and Reese Williams at the time. They both messaged me on Facebook. Uh, Nike offered me a, a kit deal and some bonuses. Um, and British Athletics offered me uh, some futures funding and that's where obviously everything changed for me because I was becoming a professional immediately and and yeah huge amazing effectively living my dream by the age of 18. Wow and what was it like getting in that, in that environment with um, Malcolm and was Di there at the time Di and, and Reese yeah 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 so Reese Reese left as I joined but um, I I worked with Di and we had a fantastic group if you think Ailey, Ailey Doyle Ailey Child at the time had joined we had Lawrence Clark join just a year before Andrew Posse had joined the same time as me um, as we're the same age and good friends and yeah to be in that group was yeah alpha it was a very alpha group especially with Malcolm leading it and, Al- and Malcolm is the most alpha you can get um, and very old school but obviously an exceptional coach and to be in that environment I went from being a hundred and I think fifth in the world to 19th in one year um, and that was the year that Di won the world championships I won the European under 23s at 19 I went from 50.4 as my PB to 48.9 um, which at the time was an under-23 British record. I then ran faster the year after. But, yeah, it kind of all came quite easy. I just worked really hard, which every professional athlete does, and things started to fall in my, in my lap. And the other thing I had was I knew what world number one was because I ran with him every day. Yeah. Um, and that gave me a very visual and obvious target of where I needed to be or wanted to be. Uh, were you enjoying the sport at this time? I was enjoying winning. Yeah. I was enjoying being good. I was enjoying um, being seen as the next big thing because, yeah, who wouldn't? But that was always a problem for me. I'm not sure if I ever actually enjoyed the sport. I think I enjoyed the external validation and being good at something. And I think that starts from when we're young. So from the age of seven and running down a grass track, did I actually enjoy running fast or did I enjoy being good at something and the praise and recognition that came from that? And that is something that I think is the same for any young person, but you don't have the awareness at the time or experience to be able to identify the difference. And I probably only identified the difference by the end of my career at, at 28. So, yeah. Mm, interesting. Interesting. OK. Uh, the London Olympics the next year. And that's um, mm. obviously it's, a, it's the biggest event in our lifetimes in terms of athletics and the rest. Um, it's interesting talking to a lot of people because you know you, you talk to the general public and it's nothing but fond memories of the London Olympics. Um, but as an athlete, in the intensity, it's it's a different story, isn't it? It's the the the, the burden of pressure on athletes, and I say athletes, athletics in particular. You know, all eyes were on the the athletics team, and expectation was huge. Uh, um, 
What, were, were you conscious of that? <laughs> were you painfully conscious of that? Painfully, because I fell. So, yes, I was very conscious. I managed to fall in the semi-final uh, at 20 years old when I was ranked sixth in the world going into it. And that was a really hard thing for me, me to take. And actually, I, I have very few memories of the London Olympics because I was just full of fear. I was scared. I was worried of what could go wrong and all the noise around it and all the things I couldn't control rather than actually just seeing that I was living that dream that seven-year-old Jack wrote about. Um, and it wasn't that long after. And I was doing it in front of a home crowd with 80,000 people in the stadium. And I was good enough to be something at it as well. Mm. So I wasn't just, and and I don't want that to sound poor in terms of it wasn't just turning up, but because just to make an Olympics requires a lifetime of sacrifice and choices and all those things. But I was actually capable of achieving something, whatever that something was. I was sixth in the world and in front of a home crowd. And yet I can't tell you much about it other than being full of fear, um, which is really sad for what is, as you said, probably the biggest moment in our, in my career, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, like you say, you stumbled in the semi-finals. You, you were fourth in the relay. What, what, what was the aftermath of that, the London um, Olympics? How did you process uh, it? Yeah, well, I didn't process it very well. I had a lack of experience. I had a lack of emotional intelligence being 20 years old and quite frankly, always overcoming adversity very quickly within my life and always coming out on top, um, even when things were difficult. So I'd never really failed and not on a, a larger scale. And that was a huge failure in my mind. In reality, I was still top 10 in the world. Yeah. I was fourth at Olympics, Mr. Bronze medal by 0.13 of a second, around 44.4, which is exceptional for a 400 hurdler to have done that and at 20 years old. Um, and yet I felt like a complete failure. Um, and it was the real trigger for my, my mental health journey. Um, and what people, because people who will know about my story or know me will know obviously what, what happened after that, but very quickly, I know we'll touch on it, but very mm. quickly, um, my mental health journey a lot of people get what they get wrong with it is that they believe my performances at London were the reason why I struggled with my mental health but I can tell you that I always struggled when I was young with mental health but because I was Mm. successful it would always be papered over so Jack really struggled with anxiety I definitely struggled with depression as as a teenager but because I would go and win races and I would overperform it would just be seen as, well, he must be okay, because we've always separated success and poor mental health. Mm. In reality, that's not how this works. You can be very unwell and yet still be an incredibly high performer. And all the Olympics was for me was a massive trigger for crisis, because I'd always been unwell and I'd never dealt with it. And it's easy to continue and not make any changes and feel well if success is there. When success goes is when we're then exposed and we're vulnerable. And that's when it became obvious that I was struggling with my mental health. Um, So whether I run fast or I run slow, whether I'm deemed to be successful or not, I still manage my mental health. And I think that needs to be well understood within society, uh, not just about my story, but in general, that um, well-being and performance are linked and they do go together and that we live on a spectrum of well-being and mental health. And it's not just a case of crisis. And that's it. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, so, would it be fair to give you a bit of clarity that uh, that experience of where where you were at? Um, it took a while. So for mm. six months, I 
avoided anything, any idea of poor mental health. I didn't believe in mental health, to be honest. So there was no awareness of it. I thought mental health was for people, poor mental health was for people who are weak. Um, I thought it was an excuse for people not being successful. So I didn't believe it was a thing. Um, so for a long time, I struggled and tried changing many things within my routine, whether it was my sleep, where I live, my nutrition, training, da, 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 thinking that oh, there's just something not quite right, that everything will click back into place. And um, at no point did I acknowledge it was mental health until I got to crisis point, really, where that was the only thing that it, it could be. And I was yeah, fortunate enough to get some support. Okay, and, and uh, was, there, was there was there a time you were diagnosed with um, depression, anxiety? Was there, did that did that come the following year? Yeah, so I started trying to race that following season, um, and I've been hugely inconsistent in the couldn't finish session, and so I was just rubbish. I was fatigued. I wasn't obviously well at that point. I was quite suicidal as well. Um, which considering I was just turned 21 and mm. um, one of the next big things in, in potentially in British athletics, it, you know, in world athletics, European athletics, that's a very sad case. Um, and it was, I flew all the way to Qatar for my first race uh, for the Diamond League. I got halfway around and just stopped. I just, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't be there. Um, and it was after that that I was then diagnosed with depression, bipolar tendencies, uh, anxiety, and I was considered a threat to my own life at that point. So, yeah, it was yeah a very sad, sad story for, you know, what should have been a, a, a rise through the ranks as such. And, yeah, there weren't too many ranks to go through at, at that point, though they're, they're even bigger and more difficult at that point. But considering where I was, that's a very sad thing. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. It's very, what, what you're talking about is very, uh, thankfully, I think, um, and I'm not an expert in this, thank, it's, it's more part of the conversation these days about people's well-being, but, but it wasn't then, was it? It wasn't as much. I mean, I mean, people were quite shocked at when you know, to be so open about it. I mean, it would have been very easy, and almost I imagine there was considerations, do we, do we, do we make an excuse and say it's something else because of the stigma at that time? Was, was that ever a, a consideration or conversations around that? Yeah, well, I stayed quiet all year, um, even though at that point I'd gone on to medication. Um, I was trying to run, but the medication, yeah, if you, anyone who's been on antidepressants, it takes a little time to adjust. And then it, in my case, it's all individual, but in my case, um, I felt like I was in a box, felt like a little bit of a, I understand when people say a bit of a zombie. I just couldn't get everything out of myself. and So I wasn't performing particularly well. I tried to do the 400 and the 400 hurdles only three weeks later at the under 23 nationals um and just 
was rubbish. I was throwing up before, after races. I just wasn't well. Um, and then I went to European Under-23s to try and defend my, my title mm-hmm. that I'd won two years before and do something that no one's ever done of, of back-to-back because <laughs> not many people get that opportunity at Under-23s. So I think I got to the third or second hurdle and it was just done and no one really could understand. And it was a case of, how do we talk about this? I took pretty much the rest of the year off and then I decided to, to go public. I'm a very open and honest person, which mm-hmm. has all, it's been a downfall for me at times um, because especially when I was younger, very emotional and very reactive. Um, not as much now, but still very open and honest and that doesn't always get received well. So I wanted to just be, all these people were asking me questions, right? What's wrong with Jack? What's happening? Da, 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 da. And I don't like lying. Um, I don't like not, being me um mm. so i thought naively just thought right i'll just go public and say i'm struggling with mental health and that's mm. it and uh yeah i think the easiest thing to do would have just been to say you know i've just got a really bad injury oh, my achilles or something and then people just go oh that's unfortunate that's it whereas um yeah in hindsight even though i'm doing some really good work within mental health and i'm really proud of the work that i've done and hopefully have created environments for other people um, to feel like they can they can share or get support. I really hope that's always been the objective from that. I really hope that is the case. But, yeah, in hindsight, it probably wasn't the best thing for me as an individual to do, um, and I probably wouldn't have done it in hindsight. Is that because you were, you were almost out in your own there as the, as the sole, I wouldn't just want to say flag carrier, but the, the person out there who's gone public? Yeah, I think in, in athletics, I think I was at that point. I think I was, yeah. especially current athletes, right? It's yeah. it's never easy to talk around mental health. It's never easy to talk about difficult things, but it's easier if you're not in it and you're not trying yeah. to forge a career in it and a reputation and brand and all that jazz. And I naively did it during my career, and I think there's still a lot of people that will be um, – struggling now if you look at the stats one in one in three one in four people um struggle with mental health yet yeah, look at our stats from athletics and and sport and where there's high pressure through the roof and yet that number isn't isn't mm-hmm. seen within sports so something's uh something's happening and and there's some stigma attached but yeah i i think it wasn't particularly understood at the time. I didn't understand it and didn't understand it for many years after. And I think it was misunderstood. And I've always thought that whether people intentionally or not um, kind of saw me as a bit of, of damaged goods or potential liability at that point, because I had this perceived weakness um, of struggling with my mental health. Whereas we all know, I think we've come a long way since then and, and understand mental health as as I said it's just a part of being a human being and it's on a spectrum and um, actually mm-hmm. there's a lot of, a lot of strength in in struggling um, and there's a damn sight a lot of strength in being vulnerable so it's actually it's very interesting just in this in the course of doing this podcast and a lot of athletes have spoken to I absolutely I am speaking to very successful athletes you know world champions Olympic medalists and the rest and as a, and without prompted that's a consistent theme about that these are you think of these people, all the athletes who are, um, well, physically, they're the gods and goddesses of sport. <laughs> they are absolute physical, the nearest you've got to physical perfection, you know. Um, you athletes, um, you're the strongest, you're the fastest, you're the rest. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to say is that, that it's because because they look so physically healthy, there's a, 
layperson's perspective of that person is, is, is a bit of health. They can't, you know, that, there's no inkling that person might be, you know, suffering in another way at all. Um, but, it, but it's been a consistent theme. A lot of a lot of athletes have talked about they did have struggles through their career, possibly because of that perception that people do put them on that pedestal. Definitely, yeah. definitely, an identity is attached to that, and then how you view yourself. And in the end, you spend spend all your time in your own head. So um, it's about the environment you create for yourself as well. But the environment of sport is an unhealthy environment. Um, we can't get away with that, and uh, from that, sorry, and we we shouldn't. But sport is an unhealthy environment. We talk about exercise. Isn't exercise great for health? Mm. But we don't exercise as sports people. You're talking about elite sports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. We train. We don't exercise. We train. It's like we mm. do things that are unhealthy. I'm sat here and will need operations and so on. I've needed operations for years. I can get away with just fine, but I'm probably going to have a lot of wear and tear. Right. Mm. That's a choice I made. I'm fine with that. But it shows it's not a healthy thing what we were doing. So there will always be some consequences to that. And it's just as long as we are you made aware of that and the support is there regarding that, then it's okay. But mm. you're never going to make elite sport healthy because it's not. And the quest for um, the very, very elite, the very best perfection, whatever people want to try and define their quest for, is not a healthy one. And I think mm. that isn't understood yet when people are now looking at well-being and obviously what I work in and saying, oh, right, so how can we make sport healthy? And it's not a case of making sport healthy. It's making sport healthier. And I think that needs to be understood. That's interesting. Yeah, it's about finding the edge, isn't it, at sports, and you can't you can't take away that edge. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. What did you do with it? So once once you stepped away, what what did that year entail? Was it? What did you do that year? Um, I the intention, the well mannered intention, was to manage my mental health and escape the high pressure and and try and learn mm. about myself. In reality, I didn't do anything about that. I just hid ran away in that time I did a bit of coaching um and just kind of did I still trained a little bit and still coached and couldn't get away from sport because that's all I knew I just didn't do very much in that year um and then I got a phone call from Lauren Seagrave out in Florida who's obviously coached countless Olympic medalists and a guru of uh, athletics in multiple events he gave me a call and said if you want to come back to the sport um, I'd love to work with you out here in Florida, and that kick-started the next journey. Right. Okay. Okay. So a bit of sun on your back then, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of it was. So I felt better because I wasn't in a high-pressure environment. So I felt better. In reality, I only felt better because no one was asking anything of me, so I could hide away, which isn't much yeah. of a life to live. But that's that's the reality, and. So I felt better. So, right, I'll go back to sport. And I only went back to sport because I didn't know I could do anything else. It's all I've ever wanted. It's all I've ever done. I don't have any qualifications in anything. My whole life was running. So the easiest thing for me to do was to run again. And we talked about identity piece. I was Jack Green, the runner, Jack Green, the Olympian, Jack Green, the hurdler in that year that I wasn't running. So I was still the same person. And then I, the one thing I thought, not only was this a fantastic opportunity to work with one of the best coaches that there's ever been, which I was fortunate enough to do with Malcolm as well. So amazing learning to have that. But it was the opportunity to change my environment and see if that would, you know, could I go into a different environment and get a different result? 
Whereas what probably would have happened if I'd stayed in the UK was I would have just gone straight back into exactly the same thing I was doing and probably, yeah, wouldn't have been the best for me. So there was some kind of thought around maybe changing an environment's a healthy thing to do. Mm, okay, okay. And, and it wasn't, it was good coming back really. I mean, you were, you were running sub 50 again. It, you know, you weren't quite where you were, where you were supposed to be, but sub 50 and you were, you, you got to the, um, you know, you're putting good relay times as well. What was it? What was the? What was your feeling? And what was the reaction to you as well from other athletes when you were back on the yeah, circuit? Yeah. yeah, fine, nothing at all. Mm. All really good. In fact, you know, me being almost an ambassador for mental health, a lot of people would, you know, confide in me and share stories, which was really positive. And quite frankly, I became a much better person off the back of struggling, and um, I became a lot more empathetic. I became a lot more logical and reasonable. Um, yeah, empathy is probably the main thing that came through. But I, my return was a strange one. I obviously invested absolutely everything to go to Florida, um, and I started running well. I was training with some exceptional athletes at the time as well. Um, but things went well. First race back, brilliant, all back on track. And then I went to a race in Geneva, and I hit her late, and I just got too close to it. I was actually running really well, and I fractured both my thumbs um three ribs and strained my pcl ligament my knee and was basically told my season was done um so that's why the time wasn't exactly where uh it mm. was when i'd left off because i managed to do that um but it wasn't a bad comeback year considering i yeah it wasn't what i wanted and i essentially bankrupted myself to get back in that position because i was investing in myself so you know i put everything into that moment but you think I'd had all that time that that time off and I'd made a big old jump to go to Florida. Um, bar that injury, I was actually in fantastic shape, and it's just one of those things. Okay, okay. Uh, but you got to the Olympics the next year, though. Back I in did. The, which was uh, back back in the big time, as it were. Um, and was, was your mindset quite different this time about, about the Olympics? Were you enjoying no, it more? No, well, no, because at this point I was bankrupt and I couldn't go back to Florida. And I coached myself for a whole year and I trained on my own every day at Ashford or Canterbury's track, sleeping on a sofa for eight months of that year. Um, so and I wrote my own program and trained on my own every single day. And yet that year I ran 48, nine, four times. I think I went sub 49, four times, the most consistent season I ever had. Um Or maybe the year after, but I still went sub, I think sub 49 at the Olympics and um yeah i ended up being back in the top 20 in the world quite comfortably knocking on the door of the top 10 and yeah i was doing all that off my own back and i was working three part-time jobs in gyms and doing my keynote speaking just to fund my career so quite an exceptional year considering everything that was happening outside of it does that in, does that make you proud what you did that year is that you? i'm proud of myself but i'm not proud of the fact that it had to happen I shouldn't be one of the best athletes in the world and, and that happened. There's a lot of accountability on me on this piece because I made the decisions and I, I chose. But, um, yeah, I just I wouldn't want any athlete to have had to find their way um, in the way that I did. Um, I wouldn't do that with my athletes now. I, I'd be there to support them and, and help them. And um, I chose to stay in Kent because I needed the support and I needed to be somewhere that I felt um, I had that support off the track. And the decision then meant that I had to look after myself on it. Um, so it was quite a lonely experience. But um, what I learned during that time, which hopefully other people learn, is 
complete opposite to 2012. I took away any expectation and any pressure from myself, mm. that internal piece, because I just didn't expect myself to run that well. I thought with everything going on, sleeping on a sofa, like that's, <laughs> that's a starter for not being a high performing athlete. So I thought with all this going on, I'm probably not going to run that great this year. So I'll just see what happens. And because I just allowed myself just to go out and run, which is what I do best, is just run, because that's what I do. Um, it allowed myself to perform. So I was just going out there and just going to see, let's see what happens. And it was far more enjoyable. As you asked about enjoyment, it probably was far more enjoyable. Mm. OK, OK. And then, uh, did you get back on the performance program after that? Uh, I think I had one year on the program and then I was kicked off before that Olympics. So I had one from the year before because I made okay. the world championships. So I was on the lowest level of funding. Um, unfortunately, I got injured the evening of the world champs. Um, after I'd done my knee, I'd re- got re-injured the night before when I'd worked so hard to get back. Um, and I was on the lowest level of funding for a year and then I got taken off. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Okay, okay. Um, And then in 2017, you, you got to the London World Championships, though. It, I did. Uh, and that was, same, uh, same arrangements off a sofa as well? or uh, No, I couldn't afford <laughs> bed at this point. I've done enough part-time work, fortunately. Um, but still coaching myself, still training on my own. Um, I ended up winning a bronze medal as part of the 4x400 metre relay team. Um, I was semi-finalist in the hurdles. I ran 48.7 that year, so 0.1 off my very, very best, which I think is pretty exceptional with everything. I was in fantastic shape. I won the European and team championships. I had a great year, really good, but still working on my own. Still, I wasn't funded. Um, and yeah, doing it in a very makeshift way, kind of um, spit and sawdust kind of way. Okay, okay. And then actually, you got to Commonwealth Games final and European semi final. Um, but, that, but that was your last year, wasn't it? Was, was it? Well, your last competitive year, yeah. Yeah, was yeah it, so. Did, did you go into it thinking it was your last year or? No, not at the time. Um, so Commonwealth were early because they were on the Gold Coast and mm. it was the only championships I hadn't done. And one thing I, I missed actually in 2016, that Olympic year, I won a bronze medal as part of the relay team um, and yeah. was European finalist um, in the hurdles as well. So, you know, successful couple of years in terms of picking up a medal here and there. And, and it's great to be part of a relay team. And Martin Marini still one of my close friends now and, and mm. things. And so great to be part of that. But going into 2018, um, I emotionally and physically put everything into that. Commonwealth is the only championships I haven't done. So I went up to Glasgow in my year off and watched um, the final, uh, the 400 hurdles. 
because uh, I like to obviously punish myself, this strange person. Uh, but I watched it and was like, okay, right, this is the only one I haven't done. So I almost have a little bit of a vendetta against it. So I put everything into it. I used what little money I had to go out to Australia early. So I did my own holding camp because England were only flying out like a couple of weeks beforehand and I didn't want to have any reason for not performing well. Um, so I wanted to adjust. So I went out for two months before. So I went out there. Um, I actually ran really, really, really well. Um, I came fourth. I missed a medal by two hundredths of a second. I missed a silver medal by four or five hundredths of a second. And it's the best race I've ever run, to be honest. Not in terms of time. For that time of year, I ran 49-0 in April or whatever it was, which is fantastic. And I'm very proud of that. But it's the only race I've really ever celebrated because I appreciated how far I'd come at that point and because I did everything I could. Yeah. I could not have done any more in that moment to have put myself in a position to win medals. It just happened to be three people ran a bit faster than me, which I have no control over, a learning I had to, to learn about at that point. And so I was really proud. Um, but at that point, I was cooked. Um, I put so much into those games. Uh, unfortunately, I, we would have won that four by four for fun, I think. But um, on the first leg, Matt Hudson-Smith pulled up with cramp. And so that was a shame because we didn't get to to leave those Commonwealths with a, at least a medal, which I would mm. confident it would have been a gold medal. But I loved that games. It was brilliant. The Commonwealths were a fantastic championships. By far mm. the most enjoyable games had. And roomed with Rooney for two months and um, <laughs> wasn't sick of him by the end of it. He might say otherwise <laughs> about me. but um, So it was great. And then I was cooked. But at that point, I had to keep running to pay the bills, to get funding and support. I had a bit of an Achilles problem at the time, but I just kept running through it. Of Europeans, I was hanging on, um, which is why it was just a semi-final. Um, if you know about sports contracts in, or shoe contracts in track and field, it was basically like if you don't compete at the major championships that year, you won't get paid half of your retainer. Um, so I got basically told if you don't go to the Europeans, then we won't pay you. Um, what was a little retainer at that point, as you can imagine, from um, my sponsor at the time. And so I just went there and just got through it. Um, and at that point, I just needed a break. I destroyed myself um, over those previous years and very lonely experience and very much just always fighting. Can't fight for so long. Um, so I decided to take it rough. Um, 2019, I said, right, I'm going to just have a break. Uh, you just need to recharge and I'll come back for 2020. So that was the original plan at the end of those those uh, that season. Everyone had a lot of plans then. Everyone had a lot of plans. <laughs> I timed mine right. reasonably well um, somehow. One of the few good decisions I've made in my life. Um, uh, as obviously we know what happened in 2020, but 2019 was a huge learning year for me. So still did a bit of training and things, of course, because that's what I do. And I was coaching a lot um, at that point as well which I thoroughly enjoy um, and if there was an opportunity to have a genuine career in it where you get where I can afford to pay my bills and so on I'd be coaching every day and day um, whereas I just do it now when I can um, alongside my day job but 2019 I was I was probably in the worst place I've been mental health wise because of the intensity I've been living at so I went to a counsellor um, for the first time since being diagnosed which shows the stigma around mental health and the fact that I still wasn't prepared to really acknowledge it and really move through it um, to a point of, you know, being really healthy. So that that counsellor basically asked me, why would you return to sport? 
and I couldn't come up with one reason that was an internal reason um, around coming back to the Olympics. It was all because it's just what I do. It's what people expect of me because it's glamorous. Why wouldn't you want to go to another Olympics, your third Olympics? Not many people can say that and so on and so forth. So I made the probably bravest decision today at the age of 28 to retire. Um, so instead of being at the peak in track and field of my powers, I decided to retire instead, which I call it my bravest decision because people don't understand it um, and still don't why I chose not to. One choice is powerful. Me being able to choose whether I ran or not was hugely powerful and I didn't believe in it anymore to sacrifice myself and I wasn't willing to destroy myself for something that I didn't believe was giving me enough back. If you look at that, everything has a cost, right? Pound of flesh. The return for me wasn't big enough anymore. For what? The pound of flesh was essentially all of me. Um, and I wasn't willing to do that, so I decided to retire. Was, was it a relief when you when you did that, when you made that decision? Yeah, huge relief. Um, mm. Also quite scary, um, yeah. I, because it's all I've known, it's all I've done. Um, it's where my identity was, and I knew it wouldn't be understood. Another prime example, if I said I'm injured to the point I can't run anymore, no one would have, people would have just gone, oh, that's really sad. But because it was a choice and mental health in particular um, and choosing for that, it was a hard thing for people to understand. Um, but, yeah, huge relief because I felt I didn't have to keep fighting, which, yeah, when you it's not complete and I wouldn't dare com, uh, compare it to anything in terms of real conflict. But I had an internal conflict that was exhausting. Um, and yeah, it was nice to kind of almost be at peace a little bit. Hmm. So tell me about your career now, your career in wellbeing. It started, well, you, you've been a Young Minds ambassador, haven't you? And then, you, yeah. Then the BBC studios. Tell, tell me, tell me where, where life took you then. Yeah. So for years and years from when I was diagnosed, I was an ambassador for Mind and Young Minds. I worked with the government on mental health reform and elite sport and wider society, um, which was really amazing to have those opportunities alongside other sports people and, and professionals working within sport in particular. And then I've been a keynote speaker for years and years, um, which, you know, the start of my my keynote speaker journey was to fund my career and to share mental health in reality. I wasn't well enough myself and I shouldn't have been doing that, but you don't really know that at the time. Um, whereas, you know, now I'm able to teach lessons and support people rather than just tell my story. And I think that's really important. How do we actually create change and support people in supporting themselves? So very different. But I then, because of my reputation that I kind of gained through speaking and through my mental health work, I was given the opportunity when I retired to be the head of wellbeing, global head of wellbeing at BBC Studios. So I was responsible for 10,000 people globally and 30 offices, um, 30, 30 offices around the globe. And I started that a week before lockdown uh, in the UK. So as you can imagine, my first job, uh, my first real job outside of running became a massive job with a lot of stress, very reactive very quickly um it was a hard job but i audited uh well-being in the workplace there um worked incredibly hard to put in a strategy that they still use now and obviously it's being modified because of the environment and how it changes and people and variables that are there but yeah i then became a, a head of well-being and workplace well-being kind of career began and i was basically given an opportunity 
um, I couldn't turn down, which I'm very grateful for. And I did everything I could to support them. And I worked with them for nine months or so. Um, but it wasn't the environment that I 100% wanted to be in. Um, so very proud of the work I did. So then had my own consultancy, worked with a lot of global organisations, supporting them on strategy and advice. And the only reason I've done well in well-being is well-being has always been seen quite soft and fluffy. Um, it's always been a nice to have instead of the link between well-being performance. I'm very passionate that if you are thriving personally, you're more likely to thrive professionally. And mm. I communicated that the whole time. The reason we look after ourselves and look after people and that we value people and this kindness and we care and we look at people's well-being is because I want them to be the very best they can be. I look after my athletes because I want them to run fast. Mm. So that performance link needs to be understood. You are a human being 24 hours a day. You are an employee for X amount of hours. You're an athlete for two hours a day. So why do we put all the focus on the employee and the athlete and not the human being? Because the human mm -hmm. being is the bigger part. The athlete or employee is just a part of you. So if I can get the big part working, then it's more guaranteed that the smaller part of your identity will also translate to being a high performer. So that's where I look at well-being. And I think that's why I've done well. Yeah, you, you talked about it. Yeah, it can be often thought of it being something fluffy um can you give us some tools though it's more of, it's quite scientific this isn't it i mean can you give us some some tools on what you would recommend for good mental health oh well that completely depends on the individual one we're all okay. different what will work for me yeah. might not work for you so but the most important thing is is discovery so self-awareness piece being able to treat yourself as such as well as obviously having that external support but workplace well-being is a very different piece so workplace well-being is around the interventions and services and support and then the culture and the training and education that we put in place so that people have a huge awareness but it's not just an awareness of mental health and well-being it's an education of understanding what it is what it looks like and how we can improve it a lot of it is people skills a lot of it is actually caring and doing more than just your job, actually looking after people. So there's lots of data that we, we put together around with Champion Health now as their head of performance and very successful company that's recently being acquired and very proud of the work we do and supporting workplaces. And a lot of that is also around the data. How can we inform workplaces around what's happening in their environments, as well as individuals around what's happening with them and then giving them the tools and education to improve that. But from a an individual point of view the things that particularly helped me and it's all around mindset one was how I measured myself so I didn't measure myself on results anymore it wasn't did I run a PB did I run a world record mm. it was around effort did I give a hundred percent effort because effort understands you're a human being effort understands you'll have days where you haven't got much in the tank because you haven't been sleeping well. There's family stress, financial stress. You look at, at the moment, financial well-being is now the number one cause of stress outside of work. So that's going to have a huge impact on your ability to do your job. But if we only measure on results, that doesn't take that into account. For me, effort understands if I only have 60% in the tank, all I can do on that given day is give 100% of that 60 that then leads to not only are you giving everything that you can, which is a hugely important thing to understand, but it's consistent because you're not destroying yourself every day. And there will be times you have to try and give a bit more and find the, if there's any reserves, but you can't give into your reserves every single day. That's where we get burnout because the intensity is too high. 
So if you measure yourself on effort, not only will it understand you're a human being and you have ups and downs, but it will become far more consistent. And consistency is where we get real high performance. Think of the best sports people that you can. Mm. It's because they're consistent. They're not a superstar one day and, and then uh, disappear the next. It's because they've got this effort and the sustainability in their performance, um, which is hugely important. So that's something I talk about. Um, talk about lots of different things, your purpose and your why. So what's the reason why you do things? Because that helps you overcome adversity. If the reason you do something is because you can, because someone wants you to, because someone pays you, when times are tough, that's not particularly going to get you out of bed in the morning. So for me, it's around can I provide for my family? Um, it's hugely important. And can I create environments that other people thrive in too? I find really rewarding. That's what works for me. Um, there's loads of other things, but it's all around mindset. And I've got a whole list of them when I do my keynotes that I share. And um, there's been a book in the work for years, um, but I've never felt too comfortable then sharing it. Uh, my own reasons for that. But, okay. yeah, lots of life lessons around how, how can you just tweak your mindset and how you view the world to create a better environment for yourself that allows you then to have yeah, some perspective and some awareness in terms of what you're going through. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's really interesting. You're like, it's, just going back a bit there, and you talked about like, using the Commonwealth Games as an, as an example from the face of it. You know, that wouldn't be your best achievement, but actually, but, but, but like you say, you knew you'd done everything possible to succeed at that championship, and you you could pat yourself on the back because you knew that you'd done everything possible. And I think that's applicable to anybody in, in, in whatever walk of life they're in or whatever job they're in. Um, we all have, you know, successes and failures, but um, if if you've given it everything you can and done everything possible to succeed, and, you know, that's, I, that's all you can do, isn't it? On that, Chris, I stepped off that track. My effort was 100%, and I controlled the controllables. I did everything I could within my power. And I understood that I couldn't control the other things and that they're not my problem, i.e. three people are going to run their time. The only way I can beat them is nailing what I do. But the interesting part there as well is, for me, it's understanding that what is your measure of success as an individual? Because actually, it's completely different for all of us. And that means that we're all high performers. And I don't think this is understood. If you're trying to be the best person you can be every day, whether that's best parent, best friend, best colleague, whatever, if you are trying, you are performing. And if you're trying to be your very best, it's high performance. And the, the reality is, I'm just a human being who ran fast. That's all it is. I'm a human being who did something well which is no different to anyone else on this planet. We're all human beings who do something well. Mine just happened to put me in, you know, the public domain as such and put me on a stage, essentially. That's very great. That's great. But I'm just a human being who tried to run fast. We're all high performers, and that needs to be understood, rather than this individual idea of unless it's Olympic gold, you're not a high performer and you're not, you're not the best of the best. It's not about other people. It's about you. And I think that needs to be understood better. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. 
It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, yeah. Well, so it's obviously, I mean, you have you have the strategies and you have the, you know how, how to, what this sort of environment should be like. But do you, do you also have, um, uh, can you give us an example of someone's life you You've touched in particular. You don't have to name any names, but someone who might have just who who you have really helped, and you've made a real difference in their life, and they have either told you about it on social media or in person. Can you think of people like that? Well, I got rid of social media. That's a start. And when I retired, (laughs) so um, because I didn't want to live my life on a digital platform other than LinkedIn, which had to have work. Um, I didn't want to measure myself on other people's. Yeah glamorized lives and all of the, the pressures that we have with social media so i got rid of that but i'm very fortunate i've coached um athletes i had an athlete go to tokyo uh, for italy national record holder um in sprints and won the world relays in that year as well and i am no better a coach than anyone else in terms of knowledge and experience there are coaches far superior to me by a long way so i was very fortunate to work with lauren and malcolm so i've had a lot of of learnings that are pretty, yeah, pretty exceptional learnings from those two individuals. But the only reason I've done well as a coach is because I care, it's because I value people off the track, because I try and find out about them and ask them and just try and be a human being about it, which is something that isn't done very well in sport. Um, we're all commodities rather than a human being that does something well. And how can we help that human being in particular do some, that something well? So so personalised, it's so individual, and there's human beings we need to care about. So, you know, I've helped athletes in that capacity, but the person I've probably helped most is myself, I, to be honest. I've done a lot of work. I'm a much different, better person now. I've had to work incredibly hard for that, make a lot of mistakes, um, make a lot of wrong decisions on that journey. But considering 11 years ago, now I'm 31 now 11 years ago I was at a point where I was suicidal at the very top of my sport and now I'm actually in the best place I've been and really happy and really thriving 11 years later is epic um it's probably let's be honest that's far more successful than anything I did on a track and I've never really thought about it till saying it now but yeah I worked very hard for that and also had a lot of help along the way but yeah, I I had to build that self awareness and take that accountability and and help myself and that that yeah, really cool actually to think about it in that way because it's been a long time. Good, good, good to hear it said out loud. Good. Um, just one final thing. What what would you like to see happening? I mean, there's an awareness now of this. Of this is an issue in elite sport, but I'm not quite sure the infrastructure is there still in elite sport. Um, what would you like to see happen in just specifically in in the um. Olympic sports in athletics. What would you like to see in place? 
Yeah, I think there's a duty of care piece. I think, as I said, sports are going to be um, unhealthy, um, and that's okay. And there will always be someone coming through. So we can't get rid of that, and we shouldn't. That's beauty of sport, right? There's all these challenges coming through and uh, how cutthroat it can be and, and just the success and the glory. It's amazing. It's why I love, I love all sports. It's, sport is still my life and my hobby and just everything is about sport. I love it. But there's a duty of care. So where I want it to be addressed is within those transition periods, whether that's someone's injured or they're leaving the sport, they're retiring, they've been dropped. Where's our duty of care and our responsibility to support these people rather than just going, all right, you're, you're not important to us anymore. What's the duty of care? How do we support people better? How's that put in place? And there isn't a responsibility to completely look after someone for however long, but there is a responsibility if you're asking someone to give their lives to the sport that you are responsible for then you have a responsibility to make sure they are okay. It's, it's, it's not as simple as that because there's so much more to it. But essentially, looking at duty of care, and I think there needs to be a shift in coaching to understand the human element, the soft skills uh, around people. So coaching needs to not only have the knowledge and experience and the skills from um, writing programs to biomechanics and all that, which is hugely important, but it's around the people. Teaching coaches who have a huge range of athletes they work with how to understand, how to communicate, how to care for their people rather than just the athlete. I think that's something for us to look at as well. Um, yeah, I think those two things, in the end, there's lots we can do. There's lots of things that won't be done. There's lots of things that can't be done. But I think a duty of care and then looking at our coaching education being more we're talking about 21st century leadership now, particularly after COVID, right, where suddenly everyone wants to see from their leader compassion and empathy and all of these things rather than the old leadership, which was my way or the highway and very brutal. Now you're also getting a new generation coming through. And this is a problem we have in workplaces, right, because you've got a load of generations working now because people are working longer because retirement age is up. So you've got a generation that doesn't really understand typically, and this is a generalisation, understand mental health and have very different views and wants to a new generation from university coming into work who actually all they really care about is life and they just need a job that will facilitate what they want to do in their life. And it's about flexibility and so on. Very, very different. We're going to have the same in coaching. Where you've got a very different generation working with generations that view the world very, very differently. And that needs to be educated what that difference is so that we can create the most successful environments for more people to thrive. Because quite frankly, I'd like to see environments where we're getting multiple athletes out of one environment because it's not my way or the highway, because it's personalised, because there's care, that the chance of succeeding is much higher rather than what you can get, which is, well, we put 100 athletes into one environment, we got one back because it was a case of there's only one way. We There are more people who can succeed than we're currently supporting to do so because we're not looking at it from an individual human level. Oh, it's fascinating stuff, Jack. It's fascinating. <laughs> oh, you've got me ranting and rambling, Chris. That's the problem. <laughs> People are going to be listening going, geez, this guy goes on. Um, but obviously very, really, really, I love athletics. I love coaching. I love sport in general. And I care. And that's where the rambles come from, because 
I think everyone should care. I think that's why we all get into this, because we care. Um, I don't think that is enough um, reward on caring. And that might sound soft, but it's not soft at all. I think hopefully people have seen that I don't look at it in a soft way. There's a reason I care, and that's because performance can come from it, not just because it's a nice thing. Yeah, fantastic. Well, you're certainly more than uh, Jack the Hurdler now, aren't you? You're much more of a rounded <laughs> individual. I mean, as we sum up here, how, would you, how, how do you look back now? How, how do you, you talked about identity. What is your identity now? Who is Jack Green? And how would you like people to, how would you summarise yourself, Jack? Yeah, so that's a bloody good question. I'll give you that. Um, lots of self-discovery on this, this Chris. Um, I think I'll be invoicing, well, you'll be invoicing me afterwards, I think. Um, I would say, I would like to think that, you know, I'm a very genuine, passionate person who wants to make some change, but in the right way. Um, and quite frankly, as long as as long as my circles are thriving as well, you know, my family, the people I love and care about, that's that's all that's important to me um, these days. So my purpose has changed a lot over the years. Wonderful. Great. Thanks, Jack. That's uh, absolutely fantastic. Great to great to. Right. Thanks for sharing your journey so honestly as well. Thank you. <laughs> as I said, I'm always uh, very open and honest. So <laughs> this wasn't going to be any different. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Athletics Life Stories with Chris Broadbent. Please tell your friends and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply